Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Georgia's Association of Healthcare Executives, or better known to many as simply GAHI. For each episode, we bring you a fresh insight into the world of leadership from a healthcare perspective. And I am your host, Sam Bailey. Today, we will be highlighting a leadership series presentation from March 31st by Tampa General Hospital President and CEO, John Corris. I'm going to divide the presentation up into two pieces. I want to talk about culture um, because I think culture, organizational climate, and organizational culture is extremely important. The Tampa General Hospital, we define culture in lots of different ways, but there are four primary ways we drive culture. We drive culture through authentic communication and leadership. We drive culture through showing vulnerability. We drive culture through being kind to one another. And we drive culture through being completely transparent, even when it hurts. Um, transparency is completely, is, is incredibly important. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that journey because um, it has begun to transform Tampa General Hospital um, in ways that three and a half years ago, I couldn't even have imagined when I first came here, um, engaging our physicians and our team members and nurses in really meaningful, thoughtful ways. And I want to explore that with you uh, through some stories and some strategies, which then really tease up this whole idea of innoventures and how does an organization truly innovate and how do you really push yourself to innovate? Um, and then we'll open it up for question and answer. So um, Bruce, if we could go to the next slide. Before I do that though, I wanna just give you a little bit of sense of who we are. Tampa General Hospital is uh, nearly a hundred years old. Um, we were built back in 1924 um, as a public hospital. We were a county hospital. In the mid-1990s, we became a private, not-for-profit hospital. Uh, we serve a little over 4 million people across 12 counties. Last year, we had almost 51,000 discharges, about $170 million in community benefit, we train over 700 residents and fellows annually across a little over 60 training programs. So we're a very large tertiary quaternary academic and research center. Our main hospital sits on 25 acres in the city, pretty much in the middle of the city, on an island actually, just a few hundred yards off of the main mainland basically. Um, or a hundred yards off, depending on where you are on the island. Um, but it's 25 acres, there's about 3 million square feet, total square footage on the 25 million, excuse me, 25 acres. And we're adding more space, actually. We're going from being a thousand, if you go to the, let's go to the next slide. We're going from being a thousand and seven bed hospital to 
going to close to about a 1200 bed hospital. <clears throat> we also have a very large distributed network of, 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 of outpatient centers and urgent care centers and clinics, surgery centers. We have 80, little over 80 locations. We saw almost a half a million outpatient visits, lots of deliveries. We're a safety net hospital, so we do all sorts of things for the community. One of the things that we're most proud of is we have a very large um, outpatient campus, essentially, up in the north part of the city that really basically takes care of the underserved. These are people that would have no place to go if they didn't have an outpatient campus that was a collaboration between Tampa General Hospital and the University of South Florida. It's a multi-specialty clinic and we're it's generational care. So we're taking care of parents, grandparents, children, aunts, uncles. We're a medical home. We're taking care of people longitudinally and we're very, very proud of that. That's a huge investment for us. We probably invest in that community alone on an annual basis about $15 million a year. We have a busy level one trauma center. You can kind of see the level one trauma visits. We have five helicopters that actually traverse 25 different counties, um, bringing in all sorts of trauma victims. We were actually closing in on 40,000 surgeries last year, but then like all of us, we were impacted by COVID and we ended up doing close to 30,000. So we lost like a little over 10,000 surgeries when we had to shut down, like, like basically all of us in the country, um, but we're rebounding nicely. So we're actually doing quite well right now and uh, feeling pretty good about it, but we're real busy uh, surgical hospital. And like I said, primarily with tertiary and quaternary work. Go to the next slide. And, you know, we're one of the largest transplant centers in the country. We're the sixth largest transplant center in the country. We do all sort, we do every conceivable transplant. 1,007 beds today on our way to 1,200. That 1.6 billion is closer to 1.8 billion. That's a bit of an older number. My apologies. That wasn't my team. That was me. I think I gave them an older number. Uh, it's more like 1.8, almost $2 billion in, in net revenue. 1,400 on the medical staff, roughly 8,000 full-time team members. But we just merged with USF, their practice plans. So we now employ about 800 physicians, faculty, some of our own doctors, along with the nurse practitioners, so about 800 one of the largest academic medical groups in the state. Um, so when you take all of our employed folks, you're, you're talking about close to 10,000 people at, at, at TGH. And like I said, we're a large distributed network. Most of our work is in the Tampa Bay region, we, but we're also in other parts of the state. We employ a little over a hundred people in Palm Beach County, which is South Florida, Fort Myers, which is Southwest Florida, and we're expanding our footprint across the state uh, through some physician aggregation work and network development activity. But that's, that's Tampa General in a nutshell. And I only share that with you because I want to contextualize some things for you before my remarks are on culture and innovation. So why don't we go to the next slide?
Um, no presentation would be complete without showing you badges of honor. Um, what I tell my team is we, we love to show off these badges. Um, but what I get most excited about is the processes that go into getting this kind of recognition. So it's, it's the hard work that goes into it. You know, so Magnet is a really a, a deep commitment we have. We've, we've recertified for Magnet four times, basically. We just got it last year for the fourth time. And those Magnet hospitals that might be on the phone, um, you know how arduous it is and it's expensive. We think it's Magnet is really the good housekeeping seal of approval for nursing. Now, we don't think that if hospitals that don't have Magnet have inferior nursing care, we don't think that at all. We just think that it, you know, hospitals that have Magnet go kind of the extra mile around nursing research, nursing education, in certain things. I and mean, it's just a matter of fact, but it doesn't, Magnet's not, uh, some hospitals will say it's an indication of nursing care. And I, I disagree. There's, there's plenty of non-Magnet nursing, but the hospitals that provide world-class nursing care. Um, and so we're proud of that designation uh, because we believe in research, we believe in teaching, and, and that's really what Magnet focuses on. But we, you know, we work very hard at this kind of recognition and we're improving every year, quite frankly. So, so we're, we're, you know, we're, we're all marching generally in the same direction when it comes to improving what we do every day. Next slide. So let's talk a little bit about designing a culture of engagement. And remember what I said, you know, I'm a big culture guy. So, and, and by the way, let me, let me just kind of, give everybody like a little bit of a, like, a, 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 let me just a little commercial break. I'm going to give you a perspective and a way to think it, maybe a way to lead. If you come away with one or two pearls of knowledge or some wisdom that I've done my job, if you come away with nothing, let me apologize. <laughs> let me apologize in advance. But I, I know there's a, lots of right ways to do the work and, and cultivate, curate a culture. I know there's lots of right ways to do it. My way is just a way. I'm not suggesting or submitting to anyone in this conference that the way that I'm about to share with you is the way, it's a way. Um, and so I'm always looking for feedback and engagement and some dialogue because um, I want to learn too. And I am a lifelong learner. I believe in lifelong learning. And that's why I've put myself through a doctoral program and getting my, ugh, getting my doctorate has been almost a four year journey and I'm defending it in December. And so I'm in the final, basically I'm getting ready to finish up and get some, you know, get ready to write it up and start, you know, get preparing for a defense on it and I'll talk a little bit about that as I go. But the way I define culture for us is the way I said it to you a few minutes ago. It's, it's for us, it's really, how do you communicate and interact with people authentically? How do you interact in a very transparent way? Um, <clears throat> in particular, how do you communicate transparently all the time? And how do you, how do you get comfortable with that? Because that's a skill. Um, it's not something that you're born with, I don't, 
believe, and it's 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 something that you learn over time and you practice. Um, how do you show vulnerability and realize that being vulnerable is not a weakness, but quite frankly, a strength? Because to show vulnerability, you really have to be confident, and the research, quite frankly, supports that. You know, if you go to peer-reviewed science, you know, management science journals. Um, or social science journals that are peer-reviewed. There's a ton of research on this. So, so vulnerability is incredibly important to me. And then kindness. You know, how do you lead by being kind and understanding um, and through love, you know, and, and, and really understanding the idea that people are people, right? People come to work. They come to your organization with their frailties, with their idiosyncrasies, and this idea and notion. I don't know if you've ever led, maybe you've led this way, um, but you've ever worked for somebody who says, you know, leave your problems at the door. You know, I, like, I, like it was said um, in the introduction by Arthur, I started in this business as a patient transporter from the, and I worked my way up. Nothing fancy about it. Um, I knew this is what I wanted to do. I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do in my career. Um, and I love every minute of it. So there's no secret sauce here. There's no magic to it. Like probably many of you on the phone, it's just a lot of hard work, a lot of focus, a lot of tenacity. Um, and you just do it, you know, you just, you get, you get to it. Um, but if you've ever worked for people that say like, leave your problems at the door, uh, I don't believe in that. I don't think you can. Um, we come to work with our frailties. We come to work with our idiosyncrasies. And I think work needs to understand, you know, when hospitals or organizations we lead, they need to understand that. And we need to be there for our team members. So I go in as a leader, are starting to immediately articulate these concepts with my team. I also, and this is always a little controversial and I'd love to see the chat room or hear what people have to say about this. This always raises an eyebrow. Uh, I do not believe that patients are first. I do not believe that patients are first. My team members are first and my patients are second. So my day is not spent on patient satisfaction. I do not perseverate on patient satisfaction. I do not obsess on patient satisfaction. I look at it, I watch it, I talk about it, I make sure the organization knows it's important and why, but I do not spend a lot of time on it. What I believe that our team members are the single most important thing, period, end of story. Because if you take care of your team and you give your team what they need, where they need it, when they need it, the team takes care of the rest and the ultimate stakeholder is the patient. They become the ultimate beneficiary of a team member feeling completely supported. So if you give your very best to your team, your team gives their very best to their patients and the ultimate stakeholder and beneficiary is the patient. Now that might sound simple, but it's not. It's very complicated implement and to educate on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let's go to the next slide. So it starts with these, we don't call it a mission, we call it a shared purpose. And 
I don't know about all of you, but a lot of times when I talk about mission, I get a lot of some of like the environmental services workers, and the food nutrition workers and people like that saying, what's a mission? What's a mission? And I'm like, Oy vey, if I've got to sit and explain the mission before I articulate the mission, then maybe there's a better way to say it. And, and I'm speaking as a practitioner now, years of experience. We call it our shared purpose, why we exist. It seems to work because every, when we say this is why we exist, it's our shared purpose, I don't ever get, like, what's our shared purpose mean? Everybody seems to generally get it. At TGH, when I got here, we had like an 80-word mission. We turned it into our shared purpose, and we turned it into like two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven words. We heal, we teach, we innovate. Here for everyone every day. The everyone every day is critical because we're a safety net hospital. Our origins are public. We, but we're now since the mid-90s, not private, not for profit. But we pride ourselves on being here for everyone, regardless of their socioeconomics, their ability to pay, where they live. We really drive on that every day. And so it's care for everyone every day. Very simple, very direct. It's not sophisticated. There's not a lot of eloquent words in it, all by design, everybody. And this was not created by a bunch of consultants. This was created by the team. And I will add, when I do, do my team member forums, I, um, everybody's fingerprints were on this. Every team member, and I'll talk about forums in a minute, every team member had an opportunity to weigh in on this. And I'll tell you how I did that in a minute. So we kept it simple and direct because you need to be able, if you can't articulate your shared purpose of your mission and you have to read it every time someone asks you about it, then, then, it's, then it's not top of mind. You got a problem in my opinion. Same thing with our vision. Our vision wasn't 80 words, it was 50 something words. And we flipped it around and it, we just said, look, what are we really trying to achieve? What's our aspirational goal? And it's to be the safest and most innovative academic health system in America. Now we do this, we measure ourselves, we're part of Vizient, and this is not a commercial by any stretch, right? but we're proud of that. We like Vizient, we, 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 we get a lot of value out of them because we're part of the cohort of the 100 most largest academic medical centers. So it's the Mass Generals, it's the UCLA's, it's the Stanford's, Johns Hopkins, Vanderbilt's. That's the cohort we measure ourselves to. And again, it's not a better or worse kind of thing. It's just that's the group of hospitals we measure ourselves to. When we started on our journey in overall quality and safety, we were number 81 out of the 100 hospitals. That's not good. Today, in our last official reporting, we're getting the official numbers, uh, the new numbers soon. Um, we're number 18 out of the 100. We moved in the last two years from 81 to 18. That's what an engaged, that's what an engaged culture can do. Now we're going to move around a little bit. We're going to go from 18, I'm sure, to 22 or 25. And COVID has had some impact on that. We'll have some, there's going to be some variability until we can get into the top 20 and top 10%. But but we're 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 gonna we're gonna get there. Um, but that's what an engaged culture does. It, it, it moves the needle in a sustainable 
organic way. I'm not a big program of the month guy. So I'm not a big believer in scripting. I'm not a big believer in <clears throat> programs. I'm much more like if I had a choice between buying a program off the shelf about teaching customer service and hiring two cultural anthropologists to tell me about my culture and how I improve customer service by tweaking and changing my culture, I'll hire the two cultural anthropologists all day long, which are industrial organizational psychologists to help me think through the cultural changes. Why? Because I think that once you're able, it's harder work, but once you make the, once you do the work and make the changes, they stick, they stick big time. Cause I've done it both ways as a practitioner and the, and I just, I've seen it work. I mean, I just, I've done it both ways. So let's go to the next slide. Right, these are our values. I'm not going to go through all of these, but, but the one thing that's new is courage. We put courage on there because I want people, everyone to challenge the status quo. This idea in this notion of creating psychological safety is critical. And there's a ton of research on this. Google has, has written on this, Google the organization, not Google the search engine, but the organization itself. And they basically, they have found out through their own research that the number one driver to true innovation, true innovation is does your team really feel like they have psychological and safety in their organizations to challenge the status quo? Ask yourselves that, like, but really ask yourselves that and be truthful about it. When I got here and we asked ourselves that, we did not have that environment. And I would tell you three and a half years later, it's better, but it's not where it needs to be. That takes courage. It's gonna, it takes courage. I'll give you an example. And Bruce, shout me out and move me along if I have to move along, please. Um, but let me give you a quick example of courage. So I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm introducing a new general, I'm gonna give an example that I think everyone can relate to. I'm in a meeting, I'm introducing a new general contractor to my construction team because the, 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 the feeling out in the community is that like Tampa General has its favorite five or six contractors and any new contractors never get a chance to bid and come in, and, which is ridiculous. Most hospital executives on the phone can attest to this. There's that urban legend. I mean, sometimes it's true, but for the most part, it's urban legend. Like, oh my God, your, your people don't want new contractors coming in. They have their favorites. And these are the reasons why they have their favorites. And I can never get in and all that kind of craziness. And most times it's just that urban legend. There's no, there's no truth to it. But I'm bringing in a new group and, and, my, and I'm pushing pretty hard saying, yeah, we got to look at other groups and there's other contractors out there and let's just open it up. And it was a tough meeting and my director of architectural services and contract and all that, doing all that contracting building work for me, he was having a hard time. He was not, it wasn't, it wasn't a good meeting. And I basically got a little fussy in the meeting and pushed pretty hard, made him feel awkward. 
I got what I needed done, meaning I got them opened. I got the, the door open, but it made them feel not great. And, and, and anyway, a day after the meeting, he said, John, now this is a director coming to the CEO. He goes, listen, I want to test this culture. This is taking courage, but I want to come in and talk to you about how I felt and how you made me feel. So he comes into my office, sits down, spends a half an hour telling me, coaching me up, telling me how he, how I made him feel. It was awesome. And he was right. And I appreciated the coaching up. And he gave me some insight into how I was pushing. But then I had the opportunity and I said to him, Dustin, can I give you some feedback? And he said, absolutely. And I was able to give him feedback on how he was coming off. It was a beautiful thing. He and I, and now I'm his, he's a, my, I'm a, we have a uh, leadership development, the whole thing here called Lead TGH, and I'm his mentor now. And you know, he's a future vice president. He's a director now, but he's an absolute future VP. He's got a bright future here. But I mean, think about that for a second. I, I, as a director, where I came from, I would never in a thousand years go to my CEO, ever, 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 ever. Courage, that takes courage, right? That's the importance of thinking through your values and making sure your values not only connect to your shared purpose and your vision, but do they connect to where you want your culture to go? Very important in my opinion. Next slide. <coughs> This is our operating model. So this is the TGH operating model. It truly illustrates how we do our work. It guides us in how we treat each other and our patients, and it serves as a compass for decision-making. So everything drives, if you look left to right, we have six strategic and operating imperatives, and everything ties to those six. If it doesn't fit the six, we don't do it period. Those six strategies drive our vision and our shared purpose. Our people and patients are in the middle. The guardrails are our values. And we have five promises to our team and to each other. Zero harm. That's our quality journey. We don't have time to go into that today, but that's the journey we're on. Remember, not zero errors. We're going to make mistakes. Our job is to make sure we have systems and processes in place that make sure that a mistake doesn't cause harm. We've, we've communication, authentic, kind, transparent, servant leadership. We use the Institute for Healthcare Improvement model for process improvement. And then we have a People Development Institute, which is the fifth promise we have for people. These are the promises we have to our people. These are the promises we are we expect our people to have with management. We are one big ecosystem, but this is the prism that we look through to guide us in how we do our work. This is critically important. And this is socialized all over the organization. I'm gonna to talk to you about how I do that in a minute to drive culture, which is gonna lead us to interventures in a second. But on one page, a nurse, a frontline, somebody in the kitchen can see how we do our work. And we educate on this all the time. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Next slide. So let's get into education. 
Um, so this is, when I drive culture, I've got a handful of things that I personally do without exception. I do engage in team member orientation, everyone. I personally teach at orientation. Now, COVID over the last year has made it go virtual and it's been harder, but we teach and I get the opportunity to talk about our values, our shared purpose, our vision. And the purpose is, is I set an expectation up immediately with the team. I'm the president and CEO. These are the expectations. These are the non-negotiables. And it's an interaction. It's a, an exchange of ideas and thoughts around the values, the vision, and the shared purpose. New leader onboarding, same thing. I teach. As a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm teaching two hours with our new leaders that are coming online. When we started new leader onboarding, we have a requirement that all of the old leaders have to go through it because we're establishing a baseline and we're level setting. So everybody's got to go through it. So the people that have been here prior to new leader onboarding all have to go through this. So 100% of our leaders have gone through it. But that again, that gets into more like how do you lead authentically? How do you lead with vulnerability, transparency, and kindness? Shadowing is critically important. Arthur mentioned it in the introduction, but let me give you an example. I don't round. I don't, I, and I'll tell you why I don't do traditional rounding. And this goes back to my transporter days. I remember when the CEO would round and the, like an entourage would come onto the floor and there'd be the CEO, the CNO, the COO, the director, the manager, and they, they would roll into you and they would say, John, yes, sir, how are things going? What are you going to say? Terrible? You're going to say they're great. Everything's great. Thanks for coming on. It's great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for connecting with me. It was, it, I hate to say it, I may get a negative. It's bullshit. You're not getting real feedback that way. You're not. Okay. So now again, I'm, 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 it's an anecdote. It's, it's through my own experience. But basically, I throw on a scrub and I work alongside nursing. I clean beds. I work with my doctors. I work alongside them. And for the first hour, they remember, they're like, I'm working with the CEO. But on hours two, three, and four, it's usually four-hour stints, they forget who I am and great things can be learned. Quick example, nurse is struggling with bed sheets, the fitted sheets. We've all gone through this. The fitted sheets come off the bed. They get tangled in the leads and the lines. They're uncomfortable for patients. They're uncomfortable for the nurse, difficult for the care providers. They look terrible. Long story short, the nurse said, this is horrible. I bring up the linen team. We pilot a bunch of new fitted sheets. That one nurse who brought it to me because I was shadowing with her, changed all the fitted sheets in the entire hospital because of that one interaction. And you should have seen the feedback we got from nurses saying, thank you for changing this. Thank you for finding something that actually works and listening to us and then following through. Like that's the power of shadowing. It's like 
being visible, walking in their shoes, walking their path, walking elbow and elbow with them. And I do it two to, I try to do it two to three, four times a month, uh, depending on my schedule. You throw on a uniform and you work alongside staff. Team member communication, I won't go through all of this because I got to wrap up, but team member communication forums are critically important. These are pictures of some of the forums. They're mandatory, where we go through everything with them. We, I show them complete transparency. We show them everything. Our finances, our quality, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything gets shared at team member forums. And they participate. They provide us feedback. They, they provided us feedback on our shared purpose, on our vision, on our strategies, but it's mandatory, everybody. That's why I get 100% of the team going through it. That's the trick. When you make them voluntary, you get the same 25% of the team going. It's the rest of the people that need it that don't show up. This is a non-negotiable. So when someone says to us, well, if I don't want to go, what are you going to do? Well, you're not going to work here anymore. We're going to fire you. That's, we, there, when you look at great organizations in any industry, every world-class organization has a set of non-negotiables. One of ours is team member forums. Next slide. So let's jump into the innovation. So that kind of talks a little bit of how we do the work around cultivating a culture around authenticity, kindness, vulnerability, and transparency. But now, if we want to supercharge innovation, if we go to the next slide, we started with bringing in this, uh, our CareCom Center and our partnership with GE with using artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, married with industrial engineering, human intelligence. We have a close to a 8,000 8, square foot center that runs the entire enterprise using technology and re-engineering. We've, over the last two years, we have saved through improved efficiency, cost controls, more better revenue and better, well, better efficiency, essentially, $40 million. That's real dollars, real dollars. Not to mention shortening length of stay, eliminating avoidable days, um, making the experience better for our patients and our caregivers. We've been, we've been layering in artificial intelligence and predictive analytics um, to help us anticipate problems before they become problems, fix issues before they become an actual issue and a bottleneck. It's been, a, it's been transformational for us. We're two years into it and we're running a little up against our culture and we're starting to plan what, what CareCom 2.0 looks like. Uh, we had a big summit on Monday and we're starting to plan what that looks like. But what this did for us is it started to get us to think about how do we accelerate innovation in our organization? And if you go to the next slide, we realized that we needed to create something called, we needed to create a, a group of people and a, an investment fund, a basically private equity inside the walls of our institution. We call it Innoventures. And it's got four parts to the ecosystem. It's got, um, part one is looking at innovation from the inside out. So 
it's got to be focused on problems we're having inside healthcare. It's an industry or inside the walls of our system. So we've got to, we need a, we need a vehicle and I have a vice president of InnoVentures. We need a vehicle to take our physician scientists work or our administrators work. And we need to look at the work that they're doing, fund the work that they're doing and help them take some of the innovations that they're working on and grow it from the inside out. We need to look at businesses that are outside the organization. And if they're working on some things, how do we engage them as an investor? And how do we become a learning laboratory for them and bring in their technologies and innovations to help us drive innovation? Because we're really on this journey of becoming a care coordinate. We're in the care coordination business. Um, not the health and wellness business. We're in the care coordination business, in my opinion. So what, what businesses out there can help us? We want to invest directly in strategic solutions, which is a, an example of investing in a, a business. We're working with a, a drone company that delivers Narcan and defibrillators to rural areas. We may be a direct investor in that. We also, the fourth piece is invest in third-party managed funds. We also have a vehicle that allows us to just directly invest in some company that's later stage that we might want to just be an investor in because it's, it's a potentially good investment. But the whole idea is we need a team that sits outside the walls of the institution that has the ability to directly invest in innovation inside our walls, outside of our walls, to solve real problems for our organization, for our community, and for our healthcare industry across the country. And we have a team of people that do that. We opened the fund in January of this year, um, and I'm really excited about it. I mean, I'd love to come back a year or two from now and say, hey, here's how it's going. <clears throat> this is brand new, but so far, so good. I mean, we're off to a good start. Uh, we got a great leader and good team assembled and, and, and it's, it's, it's taking off the way I thought it would, but we're also being very cautious and we've invested about $15 million into it. That's the first tranche of money that we're investing uh, into these businesses. And, and in some cases, that's a little, that's a pittance. In other cases, it's a lot of money. It's somewhere in between. It's a good amount to start with. And we're really excited about it. I mean, this, this will, it, it basically acts as, as an accelerant to your ability to innovate both inside and outside the walls of your institution, trying to solve real problems that you're confronted with in healthcare. You go to the next slide. And that's it. I mean, I will, uh, that's the last slide. Um, and again, no presentation we give would be if you didn't have the last tagline, other practice, other hospitals practice medicine, we define it. That is our big tagline and everything we do. So that's a little bit of TGH and um, a little bit of culture and innovation. My hope is this has met your expectations and that some of you, hopefully all of you have gotten at least one or two things out of the talk. And I'd be happy to entertain any questions you might have. John, it's Bruce. There are some questions in chat, so I'll go ahead and ask you some of these. Um, 
one of uh, John, how do you decide who to shadow? Uh, can team members submit a request for you to shadow them? Great question. I have a schedule and I pick it myself in my office. My assistant keeps me rotating through. Um, and then yes, team members can email me and they, and they do do that. So what will happen occasionally is someone will say, I don't see you on my unit or I don't, and I say, well, just send me an email and tell me where you want me to be and when, and we'll schedule it. And they do it, they send it to me and I schedule it. I show up and with the, you gotta be in a uniform with them. Do not go in with your suit. Do not go in with your normal clothing, get into their uniforms. Um, because you do over in the last, you know, it takes about an hour, but you then become part of them because they forget who you are a little bit. It really does. I mean, it does work. It's not undercover boss because they all know me, but yeah, so they can submit to me. Yes, they, they definitely, and they do submit to me. Okay. Well, here's another one. Uh, John, have you ever thought about trying to break even on Medicare? Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Um, and I think we get there closer and closer. I mean, our, our care comp center, for example, is an effort to do that, right? You know, I'm a big believer that, so, so I don't believe that we're in the health and wellness business like some health systems do. I used to believe that, but I had my own sort of emotional moment where I had to break through. I think 10 years ago, guys like me ran to a conference, heard a bunch of consultants talk about health and wellness, then we ran back to our health systems and immediately changed the names to our health systems and took off healthcare and called everything ABC Health, Jupiter Health, this health, right? We all had to be now in the health, we're in the health and wellness business. We're in the care coordination business. We're not in the health and wellness business in my humble opinion. Um, we do a lousy job in the aggregate in care coordination. Um, I think Medicare, is a big piece of that. But CareCom is a great example of that. My belief is, is if I can low, what I'd like to be able to do is lower cost to a point where we can pass on some of that to the payers, to the consumers, to the employers. Because if I can produce a world-class product at a lower cost and pass that on to the actual customer, we, we become a better value, but it also becomes a better place to have a business because it's less expensive to have healthcare and healthcare costs are such a big part of your overall costs that, that if I can help with that, I think everybody wins. So yes, we do think a lot about Medicare and that's part and parcel of the journey that we're on. Okay. Uh, how do you measure team satisfaction? We use press gaming. So we, we survey our teams annually. Um, and we do it like most hospitals. We happen to use Press Ganey. The Pulse survey that was talked about in the introduction, we decided to survey our team members in the middle of the pandemic to say, how are we doing in supporting you? There was 10 questions and I really wanted to know, what are we doing right? But more importantly, what are we doing wrong in the eyes of our team and what should be changed? We invested, over the last year and our team members, a little over $20 million in team member support for COVID, from COVID bonuses to COVID differential pay to uh, team member emergency funds to help them pay for school supplies, laptops, 
mortgage payments because we didn't furlough LA people off, but a lot of other companies and other industries did. So a lot of our team members went from two household incomes to one household income. And I had a lot of team members come to me saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, John. How am I going to pay for my mortgage? How am I going to pay for my kids' school supplies? We stepped up and paid through a grant process we have. We paid for most all of that, the pe that people came to me with that. So part of, the, part of that was survey to find out what was most on their mind, what was most important to them. And again, we use Press Ganey for that. Okay. Another question. Uh, at the beginning of your journey to develop uh, courage within your organization, uh, how did you instill the trust necessary from top down to develop that courage? Um, a couple of things. It's a great question. One, you have to be patient, right? Because people are getting to know you and you're getting to know them. So there's patience that are involved in all of this. But there's two things that I would recommend you do when you're starting to try to build trust. The first is you need to explain the why behind every decision you make. Even if you know the people who hear the why aren't going to agree with the why, most people will appreciate that you spent time explaining the why behind the decision. And that builds trust, everybody. Over time, that really does build trust. So that's number one. Number two, follow through, quick wins. What I did early on is I try to identify what was most important to my team in, in, in and they and identify quick little wins and solve those problems for people. And what would happen as you accumulate all these little wins, people start to say, wow, he does care. He does listen. He has solved the problem. We have fixed this. My voice matters. What I say gets followed up on. I mean, think about your own businesses and how much feedback you get and how much stuff really gets followed up on and fixed and what how much stuff doesn't okay i mean it's hard to do if i didn't have holly my chief of staff who part of her job is to follow up on all this and it's it's not busy work this is hardcore sophisticated work because you're not just following up on stuff you're actually solving the problems for people it is very powerful when you when you have that feedback loop because what you're creating is a virtual cycle in your organization. And when that starts to roll and people start to feel the trust and feel the follow through and follow up, it becomes a multiplier effect. So you start to build trust, you start to build psychological safety because people aren't getting in trouble for having courage to raise concerns and issues. People are building trust with you because they see you following through on issues and concerns. People feel respected because you're spending time explaining the why behind the decision. And that all kind of builds to this, to building this idea of trust uh, in your organization. Hopefully that helps. Thanks, John. I think we have time for one more question and then we'll have to wrap it up. Um, the recent merger of the USF uh, faculty practice with the Tampa General System is a big deal. How did your leadership approach contribute to the success of this venture? And what remaining challenges do you have to integrate uh, such different cultures? 
Uh, well, first of all, we have a very strong relationship with USF and we've had a 40 year history with them. They are um, wonderful people and we have a very rich history with them. Um, so culturally, there's a lot of alignment that's already there. My team and, and the USF team has, have worked really, really hard over the last couple of years at kind of putting together the deal. We signed it July of 2020, so it's all done. It's being implemented now. So now it's like implementation time and it's, it's, it, it takes a year to fully implement something this big, right? Cause you gotta take your time. And so the teams are working slowly and they're working methodically and we have lots of fingerprints on the murder weapon, so to speak. Um, we've got lots of people involved. We got lots of engagement. We, 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 what we, we're a culture of, we like to hear from people. We like to, we like people's feedback. And it's funny, I was having uh, dinner with my new chief medical officer who's been here three months. She came from the Mass General Brigham Health System, which is a world-class health system. She made a comment to me at dinner and she said, you have a very open culture here. I mean, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, a lot of feedback and coaching up to you. This would not really happen where I came from. Like you had, you came into a meeting and you were totally buttoned up. It was totally strict. You never really addressed the CEO unless you had this fully orchestrated. It's different here. And, and so the reason I share that with you is I believe in creating, if you're going to create a culture of innovation and it speaks to this question, you got to create a culture where people feel safe to engage at all sorts of different levels, roll up their sleeves. They understand the mission, meaning what needs to be accomplished for a particular project. They understand what they need to do. And they go do it. And that's essentially what's been happening at USF and TGH. It's, it's worked out really, I don't want to change it. It's worked out really, really well. It really has. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And the reason we're doing this is to support the academic and research mission of, the, of both institutions. Because as many of you know, academic medicine and research is very expensive with low operating margins. It's not, it's not a, a true traditional academic health system. It's not a cash cow. Um, and so you've got to do all sorts of things to support the academic mission of the institution. Merging our practices was one big step in that direction. Thank you for joining us today on the Gahi podcast. We hope that John's experience has offered you valuable insight into healthcare leadership. Please subscribe to Gahi podcast to stay completely up to date with upcoming episodes. Have a great day.